just as a way of reminder for what we're talking about today, this is, this is kind of a challenging sort of issue. We're talking about the gift of the Holy Spirit. So this is part two of part one. If you missed last week, um, the audio would be on our website, but, um, it's, it's a difficult thing because there's so much confusion. There's so much varied teaching around this. And so I mentioned this last week, the, the goal is the same today and it's to approach this topic in this text with scripture in our minds and the love of Christ in our hearts. So that's the, the foundation here. So we want to read Acts chapter 8, verses 14 through 17 again, and then we'll continue on. So Acts chapter 8, verse 14. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. God, enlighten our hearts. Just as we sang earlier, Lord, we want to decrease, and you increase. And as we study, and as you enlighten us, Christ and the cross and all that he is and has done, becomes more precious to us. And may that happen in our hearts today. And in his name we pray, amen. Now I'm not going to go through all of the uh, the prevailing views of this like we talked about last week, but mostly they hinge on the why, the how, and the when of when the Holy Spirit is given to these Samaritan believers. And my, my hope last week was to set the foundation for what we study today in the sense that um, what is going on in the book of Acts as far as what God is doing with the Spirit and what he has called his people to do, we've got to look to all of Scripture to understand these things well. And so last week we talked um, about a couple of things that uh, just aren't quite the same all the way through the book of Acts as far as giving in the church as far as selecting church leaders it varied from situation to situation so this takes intentional study on our part and humble hearts and so that's what we want to be about today we i asked this question last week uh what is the, our perspective and understanding of the book of acts is it merely prescriptive that we have to do everything that it says is it just descriptive that we don't have to do anything that it says or is there some of both and does it take wisdom to really discover what it is? Well, obviously, we need some wisdom in this. We looked at scriptures inside and outside of the book of Acts to talk about generosity and talk about church leadership. Uh, I mentioned, and I want to emphasize this again today too, there are absolutely things that we see in the book of Acts, a lot of things that Christians, we ought to be about today. Generosity was one of them. Prayer is another one of them. Humbleness is another one of them. Boldness is a very big one in the book of Acts. Wisdom and faithful study are going to be absolutely necessary. If you haven't noticed that already in your time with the Lord, they are necessary for understanding what, what we need to get and apply from the book of Acts. And so we, I pray that we are full of grace when things are maybe a little unclear still. Uh, we can be full of grace with 
one another. Because the reality is, and scripture teaches us this, there are just some things in this life we will not fully comprehend. God himself is incomprehensible. And this is not, sometimes we say, oh, well, I don't understand that. And it's almost like this, uh, this cop out phrase. Like, well, I can't understand that, so I'm not going to worry about it. That's not what I'm talking about here. That's a, that's a cop-out. That's actually a sinful attitude, I think, that we don't want to fall into. When we say we don't understand God, it's not that we don't want to. It's just that we recognize our humanness, the fact that we live in this sin-soaked world, and we just aren't going to get it all right all the time. So it's not, it's not a cop-out of obedience. It's just a recognition of the facts. So we don't want to have that bad attitude today and say, well, I don't get this, so I'm just going to shut down. Please don't do that. Instead, we want to say, okay, what can we understand from Scripture as we study together? So if we look at the book of Acts, uh, think about the major preachers so far. So you've got, outside of Jesus, you've got Peter, you've got Stephen, Philip, and soon we'll be introduced to, to Saul, who will be Paul. And these guys set an example for us in Acts that I think really plays into the idea of the gift of the Spirit. Okay? They're an example for us in this whole sense because they were committed to having Scripture inform the way that they preached and taught. And so that's why, I mean, you can go back, look at Stephen's message, look at Peter's messages. They all go back to the Old Testament. They all go back to what these Jews that they were speaking to at this point really would have grabbed hold of and understood. They were letting scripture influence and drive how they spoke and, and maybe even in a bigger way, how they lived here in the book of Acts. So I think we're hopefully ready for what we want to study in these verses this morning. Think back to Acts 2.38. I quoted this at the end of last week's sermon, and it's, it's this. Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It sounds pretty straightforward there, right? You've got repent, be baptized, you're forgiven of your sins, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repentance and baptism come before the receiving of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. But I'm not sure that we can just draw a line in the sand right at that point and see, okay, there it is, that's the formula every time, from then until now. And people do this sort of thing. Maybe not in that verse, but in other of these verses that we're going to look at, some people will say, okay, well, that's how it's got to be for every believer today. And I'm not so sure that we should be that quick to say it. Here, again, you've got repentance, you've got baptism, and then you've got receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, before we kind of get into the usage of that phrase, um, let me just make this point, too. Some people might hear say, well, the gift of the Holy Spirit is different from being filled with the Holy Spirit or the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And, and sure, there are nuances to those phrases in the New Testament, uh, certainly in the Old Testament even. Luke uses, just for that this idea of the gift of the Holy Spirit, he uses like six, maybe seven different phrases 
but it's all talking about the same thing. They're listed in your notes here. Let me just go through them quickly. You can see the references of where they're used. One of the ways Luke says it is that the Holy Spirit is given to people. So like in our our text this morning, it's given to them, the gift receiving as like a gift. He also calls it and says the Holy Spirit falls upon people. The Holy Spirit fell on them. He says the Holy Spirit comes upon people. The Holy Spirit being poured out on people. He also says it this way. He says people receive the Holy Spirit. They're being baptized in the Holy Spirit and also just filled with the Holy Spirit. So there's, there's a variety of different phrases that, that he uses for this idea. So the variation of language, I don't know that it proves or disproves anything really. Just, just that Luke isn't super specific every single time on how he describes what the Holy Spirit is doing and what's going on in that sense. I think what helps us too, think about Acts chapter 4. So Peter, it says in verse 8, it says, Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit before he goes and he preaches to the high priests and the high priestly family and the, the spiritual leaders there. So that's Acts chapter 4. It says Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. So here's the question that I think we should just ask. Was he not filled with the Spirit before then? What happened in Acts chapter 3? Kids, what do we learn about Acts 3? What happens? The lame beggar. The lame beggar is healed. So is Acts chapter 4 telling us that the Spirit didn't fill Peter until then? Or was he filled earlier when he miraculously healed the lame beggar in Acts 3? So you can see that this is, this is a challenge here and why we need more information through careful study. There's a, a linchpin to the book of Acts. Uh, if, if you look at most any commentary, if you look at the most, I don't know if the most famous, but the most uh, intentional verse in the book of Acts, it would be Acts chapter 1, verse 8. I've referenced it almost every week we've been in the book of Acts, and that's for a reason. It's, it's the linchpin. It's the crux of what happens in the book of Acts. You can flip back there if you haven't already. This is Jesus after his resurrection, right before he ascends back to heaven. He's looking at his closest friends, and he tells them that they would receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon them. And he says, God... So so here's what I think is going on. Let me just verify that I'm giving you the right text there. 1 verse 8. Yeah, okay. So here's what I think is going on that will help us as we move forward in this. God is doing something brand new in regards to the Holy Spirit with his people here in the book of Acts. So after his resurrection and at his ascension something new is going to happen in regards to the holy spirit jesus says it he says wait in jerusalem power is going to be given to you to then go be my witnesses to the ends of the earth i think jesus highlights this himself he talks a lot about the spirit in the book of john 15 16 those chapters he says in john 16 verse 7 it's to your advantage that I go away. He's speaking to his disciples again. He says, if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. 
There's a promise there from Jesus to his followers. God was giving his spirit to his people in a different way after Jesus' ascension. And Jesus is saying this. So I think what we're seeing in the book of Acts, and especially here in chapter 8, is the, are just the kind of the beginning steps of what the spirit in Christians looks like. Okay, what does this mean? In the Old Testament, uh, you've got characters. I'll read the book of Judges. You'll see this multiple times where the spirit of God comes upon someone or it fills them for a specific time for a specific task. You think of Samson. The Spirit of God comes upon him to deliver the people of Israel. Here, the Spirit is is given in a different way. God related to his people differently in the Old Testament. It was through the the, the temple, through the tabernacle. It's where his Spirit dwelled. But now, as we see in Acts 2 with Pentecost, the Spirit of God comes upon all believers. It's not confined to the temple anymore. Now, Christians are the temple. The Spirit dwells in them. So I think, I think what we're seeing in Acts is a different way that the Spirit is moving through God's people. Just, and this is just the beginning steps. Think about Acts chapter 2. In your notes, there's just some blank space here for you to take notes as we go through some of these chapters. I want to take a, 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 cl- a bit of a closer look at some of these passages that refer to a filling of the Spirit or receiving or a pouring out. I want to pay attention to the order of things as we go through them. Think about Acts chapter 2. If you look at verse 4, it says that the believers, they are all together at Pentecost, and the sound of a mighty rushing wind comes, tongues of fire appear, and verse 4 says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Acts chapter 4, Peter has just preached his sermon. He is arrested. He is thrown into prison. He's then released from prison. He reports to the church. And then the believers, they lift their voices to God in worship. They glorify him for being a sovereign God. And they ask him to help them continue speaking his word with all boldness. And then in verse 31 of Acts 4, when they had prayed, that verse says that they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. That's a filling of the Spirit. Look at Acts chapter 8. This is the one we're in now. Under the preaching of Philip, the Samaritans believed and were baptized, but it's not until after Peter and John come and lay hands on them that the Spirit was given to them. Remember, consider the order of these things. Acts chapter 10 We'll be introduced to Cornelius. Neat story in Acts chapter 10. His whole household is hearing Peter's sermon. And in verse 44 of Acts 10, it says that the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard. Guys, even before Peter gave an invitation, the Holy Spirit came upon Cornelius and his house. On all who heard the word. And as a result, verse 46 of chapter 10 says that they started speaking in tongues and extolling God. But it's not until after all of that happens, in verse 48, that Peter says, go be baptized. The order is different here, isn't it? There's a bunch of components that are the same. You've got belief, you've got preaching, you've got repentance, baptism, prayer, the filling of the Spirit, 
You've got worship in there. And in some instances, the order was the same. We saw preaching, belief, baptism, and the filling of the Holy Spirit. But here in Acts 10, it's different, isn't it? You've got preaching, the filling of the Spirit, speaking in tongues, and then baptism. So the pattern varies from situation to situation. Is that significant? Turn to Acts 19. We'll get there and we'll talk about all of these future passages more in depth as we go. So that my intent is not to just expound on them fully at this point, but just to get an idea of what we're talking about in the filling of the spirit. Acts 19, there's a really interesting conversation and encounter that happens with the apostle Paul, who's now Paul and sold out for Jesus and going and speaking to people about the risen Christ. And he has this conversation with some disciples in Ephesus who had been baptized into what they describe as John's baptism. And they say in Acts 19 verse 2, they say, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Okay, so Paul gets there and he helps them understand that John's message and baptism of repentance was regarding, was actually about Jesus. That was preparation of the way to help them understand who Jesus is more. Verse 5 and 6 of Acts 19 says, On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. So in Acts 19, you've got preaching, you've got John's baptism, you've got more preaching from Paul, you've got Baptism into Christ, then the Spirit fills them, and then they speak in tongues. Again, a different order altogether. What do we, what do we take from this? Why do I bring these instances and why do I bring this up at all? Well, I, I hope there's a couple of things that we can apply with conviction and humility upon learning these things. The first one is that there, there may be discussion maybe even some loving disagreement on exactly what the meaning of being filled with the Spirit or receiving the gift of the Spirit or the baptism of the Spirit really is. But what I want to point out is that there isn't any disagreement on the fact that the presence of the Holy Spirit in a Christian does something. It result. It has a result. I'll just use the term observable markers. And we see it in these instances in the book of Acts. Whenever we read of the filling of the Spirit or somebody receiving the gift of the Spirit, it's not just simply this this logical understanding of of truth. It's not just, okay, I, I understand that. That's good. I might even believe that. Let's move on. It's It's not like that. It's more than just a a logical understanding. It's I hate to use the term experiential because of all the bad connotations that that could have, but there's something that these Christians experienced as a result of the Spirit dwelling in them, coming upon them. Now, don't get me wrong in this. Please don't hear me wrong. You can't have the Spirit of God if you don't understand the truth. Because Jesus says that's one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit. He will come and he will reveal all truth to you. He will lead you into all truth, as he says in John 16, verse 13. So when the phrases about being filled with the Spirit come up in the book of Acts, 
the texts point to these observable markers. Let me just give you a few of them. These are also in your notes. In Acts 2, 10, and 19, the result of the filling of the Spirit is speaking in tongues. In Acts 4 and 10, we see the result of the filling of the Spirit is worshiping and praising God. The text uses the word extolling. Acts 19, we see the result, one of the results of the indwelling spirit is that these new Christians, these Christians prophesy, start speaking truth about Jesus. Acts chapter 4, the spirit comes upon them. We read this verse and they ask for all boldness to speak the truth and the spirit fills them to speak boldly and to proclaim and witness to the things of Jesus. And so this goes to illustrate that point that I've already made, that the Spirit of God in a Christian's life does something. The Holy Spirit isn't just given to a person and then sits dormant until they go home to be with Jesus. God's presence in a person's life results in observable markers to some degree. It does something. So maybe then what we're seeing in the book of Acts, are, are illustrations of what the Spirit's power does when it comes on different groups of people. Because it's different in a lot of these different scenarios. For some, it comes with speaking in tongues. For others, it comes with prophecy. For some, it comes with an overflowing of praise, of God's greatness. It comes with obedience to the commands of God. It comes with courage and boldness to witness. And it comes with working miracles and signs and wonders. Flip with me to Acts 5, verse 32. In Peter's message, he says, he says this in verse 32, and we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So a person who's being obedient to Christ has the Holy Spirit of God in him. This leads me to to say something this morning that I don't intend to shock anyone. I don't think it's that shocking in, in general, but obedience to God is just as much a mark of the indwelling spirit as somebody who speaks in tongues or prophesies. Obedience to Christ is a revelation, is a revealing of the Spirit of God. The, wit, the, the Holy Spirit bears witness to it. It's, it's worth considering in this too. God promises something to everyone who receives the Spirit, but He doesn't promise that we're all going to have the same giftedness. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is really clear about this. There Paul is talking to the Corinthian church and he says this. He says, in one Spirit, verse 13, we were all baptized into one body. Jews and Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of the one Spirit. Ephesians chapter 1, 13 and 14. Paul explains that in Christ, he says, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. If you believe the gospel unto salvation, you belong to God and you have the Holy Spirit. That's what these verses are telling us. That's what we're seeing in the book of Acts. And if you are sealed with the Holy Spirit and have been baptized in one spirit, then Jesus does promise something 
to us in Acts chapter 1. He promises that when the Spirit comes upon a believer, they will receive power. That's what he told his disciples, right? You will receive power. What are, believer, what are believers given power to do? What will they have the ability to accomplish? The ability that doesn't even come from them, that comes from the power of God. What's well, just this? To effectively witness for him. That's the power that God gives to every one of his children. To every believer that has the indwelling spirit in them, they have the power to effectively witness for Christ. That's the promise that is given. Jesus says that the spirit will provide the power to be his witness in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's the promise that made is made to everyone on whom the Holy Spirit comes. Not just a few people who have a special experience, but on every Christian. This leads us back to one of the questions that I asked last week and one that might still be on your mind. Why did God withhold the spirit until Peter and John came to Samaria? So putting our Bible study skills to good use this morning and evaluating other texts and principles from scripture I think, I think it's clear, and I've made this point, that Jesus' ascension ushered in something new. It's a different way that God related to his people in regards to the Holy Spirit. It's what Peter said to the high priest and to the Sadducees in Acts 5. He says, the Holy Spirit is witnessing along with them of Jesus being the exalted leader and savior of the Jews. This was him over and over. These early Christian preachers and teachers said that the crucified and risen Christ is the savior of the world. They always point to Jesus, whether it's, whether it's tongues, whether it's prophecy, whether it's prayer, whether it's bold witness, it all goes back to Jesus. It points to him. He is the one who empowers believers through his spirit to accomplish what he is then sending them out to do in Acts chapter one. God's doing something new in and through his people regarding the Holy Spirit here. And it seems to me that in Acts, the testimony of Jesus is of utmost importance. Listen to what Jesus tells his disciples about the Holy Spirit in John 15 and 16. Kids, really pay attention to this. John 15, 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send you to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Remember, that's Jesus speaking. He will bear witness about me. John sixteen fourteen. Still Jesus speaking of the Spirit. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And there he's, he says it multiple times. He says the Spirit isn't going isn't gonna to tell you anything other than what I've already said, or he's going he's gonna to tell you about me is to declare the things about me. The spirit's job is not to speak for himself or about himself, but to speak of and about Jesus for the first seven chapters in the book of acts, the preaching of the gospel and the work of the spirit is more or less confined in the city of Jerusalem with the Jewish audience but what happens in chapter 7? Stephen is martyred 
and persecution results. And now we've got Christians leaving the city, preaching the gospel wherever they go. And you've got the first steps of fulfilling this great commission that Jesus gave to his disciples. You will be my witnesses. The testimony of Jesus is of utmost importance. In Acts chapter 8 and 9, we're seeing the next phase, if you will, of what Jesus said would happen and what we'll see all the way through the end of the book of Acts of the witnesses going beyond Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. The promise has been made. It's a sure thing. Jesus says you will receive power to be my witnesses. The promise has been made. But how it gets worked out in the beginning here isn't always exactly the same. I think this is interesting that I read this week too. The delay of the Holy Spirit here in Samaria until Peter and John come put these Samaritan believers in the same position of Jesus' own disciples before Pentecost. Think about that. They had genuine faith in the risen Lord, but they had not yet received the promised Holy Spirit until after Jesus' ascension, till Pentecost. So I don't, I don't think that we should insist that either the experience of, experiences of those first disciples or the experiences of these people in Samaria in Acts chapter 8 should be the, made the exact template for the Christian experience today regarding the Holy Spirit. These were unique events in salvation history, uh, not the normative pattern, even according to Luke, as we've seen. It varied. So if the witness of Jesus is, is paramount, if it's the biggest thing in the book of Acts, then it's likely that Peter and John came and were witnesses to true salvation and these Samaritan believers, and then they affirmed it by the laying on of hands. And God's promise held true. The Holy Spirit was given to them, even non-Jews in this situation. I think this leads us to see something else, that the filling of the Holy Spirit and taking the gospel to the nations go hand in hand. They're, They're connected here. I heard it put this way, um, so I was studying. The filling of the Holy Spirit coincides with the Great Commission, and the Great Commission is empowered by the filling of the Holy Spirit. Because they work together. You're only filled with the Holy Spirit as one of God's children to take the gospel to the nations, to be satisfied in Him, and to go with that message everywhere. We see the apostles and Christians now through the book of Acts start to carry this message out. You can imagine it like a circle on a map. You've got Jerusalem and, and it's great. You've got the first seven and a half chapters or so. And now chapters eight and beyond, it, the, the circles start getting bigger and bigger. And that message is start to permeate towns and cities and nations outside of just Jerusalem and Jews. So the fulfilling of the Great Commission is what's primary here. I don't think there's any doubt about it. But the how seems to be sort of secondary. Now, just to be clear, I'm not saying that the means by which we share the gospel and witness to Jesus Christ don't matter or are insignificant. We can't live like the ends always justifies the means or else we're going to be in a lot of trouble and into some sinful situations. Uh, I, 
that that claim fails, that the ends always justifies the means. That that claim fails when we go to study all of Scripture regarding Christian living, our witness, and sound doctrine and holding to it. <laughs> there are some things that cannot be compromised by God's people, even st- still today. How we live and witness to Christ matters just like what we proclaim about him matters. And as believers are going with the message of salvation, we are witnessing to the truth of Jesus by the power of the indwelling spirit. When you have the opportunity to speak up and to speak boldly about faith or about truth, understand you don't speak alone. The spirit of God is in you, empowering you to to be the witness that you are called to be. And as we'll see next week, by God's grace, with the Ethiopian, the Spirit leads us to places and people that we might not expect. When explaining salvation to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, Jesus says something interesting about the Spirit. Verses 7 and 8, Jesus says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Friends, the Holy Spirit is not accountable to me or to you about where he goes or what he does. These early Christians, even some of the leaders like Peter that we see boldly proclaiming truth about Jesus, they wrestled greatly with the idea that the gospel was for the Gentiles just like it was for the Jews. And it's not until even a couple chapters later where God really has to use this incredible vision to fully convince him of this truth. I mean, even in Peter's sermon in Acts 2, he rightly identifies Joel's prophecy When Joel said the Spirit of God would be poured out on all flesh, uh, regardless of age, regardless of gender, regardless of position in society, God's Spirit was going to be given to all who obey and who believe. But again, it's not until later where Peter gets this vision from God. And this is what he says in verse 35 of Acts 10. He says, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation... Anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. That was like that light bulb moment for Peter where it clicked. And he said, okay, Lord, I get it now. The gospel isn't just for us. It's for everyone. And then Paul would go and really be that uh, missionary to the, to the Gentiles at the rest of the book of Acts in By God's grace and in his grace, God imparts his spirit to everyone who believes. And here, let me just give you a refresher of what the spirit does in your life as a Christian. The spirit in the Christian's life leads them to understand truth about Jesus and to glorify him. Right? That was the, that was what Jesus says the point of the Holy Spirit was. So obviously the spirit is going to lead his people to do the same thing to understand truth about Jesus and to glorify him. The Holy Spirit indwelling in a Christian convicts them of sin and leads them to righteousness. That's your sanctification, brothers and sisters. The Holy Spirit does it. The Spirit intercedes for believers. The book of Romans says when we don't even have 
words to, to say. Just in our groanings, the Spirit intercedes for us. Paul says he is our seal and our guarantee of our future inheritance, our future eternal inheritance. The Spirit gives gifts to the members of the church to build the body up in love. And the Spirit empowers Christians to be witnesses of Jesus and to speak truth about him to everyone. So maybe the how and the when, when it comes to the gift of the Holy Spirit here in the book of Acts, aren't really the first questions we should be asking about this text. They're not wrong questions to ask, but maybe they're not the first. Maybe a better question is is this. Have I been filled with the Holy Spirit? Are there, I used this term earlier, are there observable markers in my life that would attest to that? Have I been placed into the body of Christ, into his family? Remember, the result of the indwelling spirit in a Christian does something, right? It accomplishes something. It has an effect. Romans 8, 5 and 6 says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. See, the Spirit in a Christian's life does something. Romans 8, 11, he says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Spirit in a Christian's life does something. Have I been filled with the Holy Spirit? Are there those observable markers in my life? Maybe you could say, yeah, I have seen the spirit of obedience at work in my life, helping me to to subdue sin and lead me to treasure truth, maybe not perfectly, but more and more each day. You could say, yeah, I've seen the spirit of praise in my life, filling me with thankfulness for who Jesus is, for how he saved me and what he's given me. Leads me to worship my Savior. Maybe you could say, yes, I have seen the spirit of boldness at work in my life, Overcoming fear and giving me a willingness to speak truth and to witness about him in difficult situations. Jesus told Nicodemus, remember the spirit blows wherever he wishes, but he also told him that whoever believes in the son may have eternal life. The guarantee of the Holy Spirit and eternal life are promised to God's children And Jesus says that it's through your belief in him, whoever believes has eternal life. Now, the evidence of the spirit might not look the same in every person's life for everyone at all times, but there will be evidence. It will be seen and it will testify not to ourselves, not to a denomination, not to an ethnic group of people, but the spirit of God in a Christian's life will testify to the glory of Jesus Christ and to who he is. That's how you know if someone is filled with the Spirit or not. Do they love Jesus, and do they talk about him more than anything? I'd encourage you this morning, trust in God's work through the Spirit 
by his son for your salvation, if you haven't already. And if you have, trust in these same things for daily grace from him through his spirit who dwells in believers for the glory of his son, Jesus Christ. May we be filled with the spirit day in and day out to testify to the power of Jesus, to the worth of Jesus Christ. May, may that be what dominates our lifestyle. Let's pray. Lord, I'm grateful for the testimony of these early apostles who even in the face of, of sure persecution and even death, they seem to get that your spirit would give them the power that they needed in those situations. And it's true. Even the death of Stephen had incredible results in your kingdom. And Lord, I pray that our obedience to Christ would reveal the indwelling spirit in us that we might run to you when we've fallen short of that standard but also hold our heads high in remembering that there's no condemnation in Christ and that when we go, as we read early in Romans, when we go with the gospel, when we're sent with the gospel, that we would go and we would preach faithfully that Jesus is the risen Savior of the world. and Everyone who calls upon his name will be saved. So Lord, I pray that if there's any that don't know you, have not called out to you, that today would be that day that they call out in genuine faith and belief. And we know that your promises hold true and that they will be saved and that you will never leave them or forsake them. God, I, I thank you for the indwelling spirit. I thank you that you have not left us alone. The comforter is here. The encourager is here in your people. Lord, help us to not to walk around like we're doing this on our own. We're not flying solo in this. Lord, you've, you've sealed us with your spirit and you've placed us into your body, the church. And I pray that these things make us full of joy, your joy, as we go out to the nations around us with the gospel. Do your work in us, in Jesus' name, amen.